At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Right now on Fast, a week to remember. In the last five trading days, names like Goldman, Amazon, NVIDIA, Disney, and Royal Caribbean popping 10% or more. The S&P 500 up over 4%. The Nasdaq popping close to 6%. Question is, have we come too far too fast? Plus, two big earnings reports after the bell. Tesla beating on the top line. Missing on margins. The stock is fading at this hour. United also dropping big time after hours. The airline with an ugly miss. CEO Scott Kirby will join us for a CNBC exclusive just minutes from now. And then later, a coin comeback. Shares of Coinbase, look at that, popping over 40% just this week. Up over 14% today. The details behind the move and the options action coming up. I'm Sarah Eisen. In today for Melissa Lee, this is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, a full house. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Courtney Garcia, and Dan Nathan. Guys, it's, it's good to be here and good to see all of Wait, you. So how are you? I know. Wow. Like subway. It was, it was, I thought it was a, a beautiful day for a subway. Big effort. Right. <laughs> it was like when Queen played at Wembley Stadium, got on a plane, and then did... That was Phil Collins. Anyway, that was Phil Collins? I wouldn't like know. Okay. Anyway, it, it was fast. Oh, well. I made it. Tesla, we got to start there. The EV automaker initially rallying after hours on the beat. It was a beat on the top line a little bit, but missing on revenues, on missing on margins. The stock hovering around the flat line right now. CNBC's Phil LeBeau here to go inside the numbers for us. Phil. Sarah, it was a beat in terms of earnings per share. Tesla earning $2.27 a share, well above the expectation of a buck 81. Revenue falling just shy of expectations, coming in at $16.93 billion. The street was expecting $17.1 billion. But it's the numbers within the numbers. That's what's putting pressure on the stock. Let's start first off with Q2 automotive margins, gross margins, X zero emission vehicle credits. That's crucial that you have the X Zev credits. It came in at 26.2%. The street was expecting 28.2%. For a point of comparison, in the second, in the first quarter, that margin was 30%. So you've seen a drop of 4%. They knew that was going to happen as they ramped up two factories, one in Texas, one in Germany. They now are down to a four-day supply of autos in the second quarter. Think about it was a year ago. Their day supply was at nine-day supply. The Berlin Gigafactory now at a production rate of 1,000 vehicles per week. That's certainly good news there. Operating cash flow, $621 million. But they say very clearly they're seeing challenges when it comes to the supply chain, labor shortages. All of those are weighing on Tesla. They also they also sold 75% of their Bitcoin holdings. $936 million is what they gained from selling those holdings. They then put that into other currencies. And then finally, uh, as you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that the conference call is coming up in a half hour. The question is whether or not Elon Musk will be on that call. What does he have to say about the state of the business? He's had plenty of comments on Twitter in the past, whether it's about the gigafactories or about uh, that he doesn't like the, the look of the market at this point. So there you have Tesla again. A beat in terms of earning 227 a share, well above what Street was expecting, but revenue falling short of expectations. Well, Sarah? someone should ask him about that that Bitcoin sale because when when he bought Bitcoin back in May 2021, he he tweeted 
I'm not going to sell it. We're, we're buying Bitcoin. It looks like <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Phil, thank you. We'll see you in a few minutes with United you CEO Scott Kirby. Let's trade it. Dan, your take. Ooh, um, listen, <laughs> like most Tesla quarters here, there's a lot to pick at here. The bulls are going to say they're doing this in a very difficult environment. I'll just take this one comment out. Over a multi-year horizon, we expect to achieve 50% average annual growth in vehicle deliveries. The rate of growth will depend, this is really important, on equipment capacity, factory uptime, operational efficiency, and the capacity and stability of the supply chain. So basically, they have no visibility. I- I'm just saying, so they're just guided to 50% you know, uh, growth in deliveries, but the near term, they have no div- uh, visibility. And what did we just hear Phil just say? What do they have? Two, two days worth of cars, where a quarter ago they had nine days of cars. So to me, I, I don't know how you can have any confidence in this guidance right now. And also to your point about taking that gain from the sale of Bitcoin, which he said he wasn't going to do, I think that that has some cash flow implications. So the quarter- Yeah, they would be cash flow negative, yes, right? Otherwise. Correct. So it's just like, uh, it looks like a little little funky but, stuff. But that, that, that kind of guidance is similar to also him saying, I, we expect to have a record-breaking second half. What does that mean? I mean, yeah. it could mean, actually, it could mean on production. It could mean on deliveries. It could be uh, you get the margins back to levels. But uh, back to those margins, it really depends on where you were sitting coming into this number. Because while, yeah, 30% last quarter, 28.2 uh, expected, 26x credits. You know, But uh, I know a lot of analysts had already downgraded the margin coming into this. I actually think there's going to be a sort through this. I think there's a pass. Uh, and some of the Shanghai difficulties, if you look at where they would have been, and again, 27% uh, deliveries in June, if not for Shanghai, would have been back up to 67%. So, I mean, I think this is the story. People have to decide whether you're ready to write off Shanghai. I think the biggest story that Tesla can lean back on is Berlin and, and Austin. And, and that's really going to give you, yeah, the ramp. And that's really going to be the wild card for what 22 looks like by the end of the year. And right now they're telling you everything you want to hear on that. Do you give Elon and Tesla a pass for the Shanghai shutdowns? Well, I think ultimately it's going to be a short-term issue, right? And I think a lot of this, like the supply chain issues, what's happening in China, that's something the entire industry is facing. It's not just them. And I think what you want to look at is if they're going to get through this over the long term, yes, it could be something to look at. But ultimately, I still look at Tesla and I have a hard time with it just because it's valued so much higher than, say, like your Ford or your GMs, right? And it's just that at the end of the day, I don't know how much upside there's going to be compared to that valuation. So... Yes, I think some of these things I'm not as concerned about hearing, but I'm still not a long-term buyer. Though that has always been the story with Tesla. That's true. You would have missed out on a lot of profits. Nobody owns it, right? No, you're not. What what do you make of the quarter? I think, you know, it was kind of a noisy quarter. As as every company in this business is noisy quarter. Supply chain issues, the China issues, right? FX, the Bitcoin thing, which is really a a sideshow, but... You know, I don't know if uh, Tesla shareholders ever get um, sort of frustrated with his sideshows. I don't know. Maybe they don't. Um, Clearly, it's, you know, it's an amazing company that he's built. However, the valuation to me is just way too high to get comfortable with it. I wouldn't short it either because of its, you know, cult-like status, but I have no position. I think the other question, Dan, is, is for Tesla, it's always been more demand than supply. No. If we are going into a recession, Correct. depending on what that looks like, will that still be the case for Tesla? They've never had to really worry about demand, but there's a lot of competition. 
It's funny. On the high end, you would say they don't have to worry about demand because that consumer is doing a bit better. But that's where a lot of the competition is coming on. All the Germans, all the Japanese, they all have high end. I mean, they're all there. And if you put these things, you stack them up. You want to take the Tesla Plaid at 140 versus a Porsche uh, Taycan. I mean, nine out of 10 people are going to take that. I'm just telling you, like, matter of fact, I do these at every dinner I am. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just telling you, like, what's the price? They're like the same price. You know what I mean? And so here's the issue. And I say this all the time. You know, I had an EV. I had the Ford Mach-E. I had to give it back because, well, I had to take a loss on it. Um, It's a great car. And it's a great car versus the low end Tesla stuff. I think the service is going to be much better. The problem is, is the supercharging station build out. It's not there yet for anything other than Tesla. And that right now is going to give them that advantage on either one of those, um, you know, price ranges. But your point about the recession, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, if we have a recession and crude oil comes in, I just think that you're going to see less demand in the near term until there's more um, optionality away from Tesla for these things. So I go back to that visibility on the back half of this year. You know, we've all been around long enough. When you start hearing companies talk about, you know, second half loaded sort of stuff, it doesn't make you feel good about the guidance that they're giving right now. Yeah, lot riding on that. There's also that report that Ford is going to be cutting a few thousand employees 8, to 000. focus on 8,000 on EVs. Let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures for more reaction to Tesla's numbers. And I believe, Gene, you've been a longtime bull and still are on Tesla. What would you make of the numbers? Well, uh, Sarah, there's the near term and the long term. In the near term, it was negative. Obviously, that miss on the gross margin, it was worse than expected. And I was conservative going into it. And it still missed those numbers. And I think that that is going to play into how investors process this quarter. Ultimately, I think this comes out, the stock trades down over the next uh, few weeks as investors really start to wrap their head around what Dan is talking about, this production number for the back half of the year. And so uh, just to frame it in as clearly as possible, I'm positive on Tesla. This was a negative quarter. Uh, There were a lot of headwinds that they had. And I want to just add a piece that they had a, a tailwind related to gross margins. And that did not offset some of the, the impact on gross margins. And so when I think you put it together, you need to be uh, realistic here. And ultimately, the question comes down to uh, these issues that have impacted this pressure point around gross margins. Are they transitory? Are they something that the company can work through? My sense is it will take a couple quarters to get through these. So we uh, start to need to think about 2023 in terms of when we start to really see some lift on the margin side. And I just want to quickly frame in why that matters. Why are we talking so much about auto gross margin XEV credits? I'm a believer that Tesla is a tech company. And that belief is based on a margin profile similar to other tech companies. So to the extent that they can perform on that and continue to expand margins kind of bodes my case for this being valued more like a tech company. And the reverse is happening right now for understandable reasons. But I think when you put this together, it was a headwind for this quarter. It doesn't change my belief. And I would just uh, uh, leave the, the thought I'm still bullish on Tesla because I think they can't keep up with demand. And I think that's ultimately they may or may not hit that back half of the year number because of production issues, mm-hmm. but they're going to continue mm-hmm. to gain share. Nobody here believes you or agrees yeah. with you on the bullish call. But but you've made a great call. Gene, it's Karen. Let me just ask you about this gross margin issue. Do you think that part of the solution or the expansion of gross margin comes from a higher sticker price? Or do you think they're going to be able to operate more efficiently? It's the efficiency piece. 
there's been essentially uh, three different headwinds that they've had on the gross margin. One, of course, was the shutdown of Shanghai. That's just a, a huge headwind. There's the FX impact of that, and then also costs related to ramping Berlin and Austin. And so I think that, uh, again, it was more of a negative impact than I was expecting it. This is a negative. This wasn't just about a lot of bad things thrown at Tesla. It was worse than what I had expected. But I do believe that over the next six months, they're going to work through a lot of these and we're going to start to see a revision higher in terms of gross margin. So, Gene, it's Tim. So the, the street, I think, is around 1.35 million units to the year. Tesla's numbers up 60 percent imply about one and a half. Uh, if you look at where they could be with Texas and Berlin, if you look at annual capacity, um, is there a surprise to the upside? Again, I think consensus is below even where Tesla has guided. Where are you? I think that uh, over the next six months, there's probably more risk to the numbers, uh, to those delivery numbers, in part because uh, essentially you're gonna, they're gonna have to re-accelerate uh, pretty significant, or not significantly, but it needs to be just slightly above 50% for the back half of the year. And we're still coming out of these shutdowns and we're still just in the phases of ramping Berlin. And so I think that uh, I, I, I wanna be clear is that I think the next six months, there can be some uh, softness to these delivery numbers because it all comes down to how the world is going to, uh, 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 I guess, align for them to produce more. But I think what's more important is just that the market has a flashlight that looks into 2023. I think we forget that when we get our heads wrapped around these these quarterly earnings. The question for me is not about uh, what the margins are this quarter, what they're going to be next quarter, what the deliveries are next quarter. It's more what are they going to be in 2023. And I think 2023, we're going to see expanding margins and separately deliveries that are going to be in that 50 percent plus better range. I'm, I'm sort of surprised to see the stock up, given what you're saying, although it is fluctuating between up and down. Gene Munster, thank you very much. You'll keep us posted, please, with any details from the call. Last word, Dan. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just the lack of visibility. I think that Elon has a whole host of reasons, and I think as it relates to his deal with Twitter, to, to kind of make sure this stock doesn't fall out of bed. If this stock falls material out of bed, he has a hard time coming up with the equity to get that deal done if he's forced to do it in the trial in October. The analysts never ask about Twitter. They never ask the good questions. Well, they should also ask, hey, if any of you analysts, why did Larry Ellison quietly leave the board a couple weeks ago on a Friday afternoon? And no one in the press, none of the analysts have asked about that. That was his big buddy there on the board. So I I think that's a reasonable question. Well, there's a lot of turnover on the entire team. They lost their head of AI. They've lost other key execs. So, yeah, I mean, clearly not everyone's in love with Elon. And I know the Bitcoin sideshow, but I still think it's interesting that he said we're never going to sell Bitcoin. And now they sold it and they would have been cash flow negative without it. Well, he was going to buy, you remember, Funding secured, 420 for Tesla. Well, he didn't do that either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He is a liar. Well, there we go. Uh, We'll keep you posted, of course, on any (laughs) any headlines from that earnings call as it kicks off. Coming up, an earnings alert on United Airlines. Shares on the move, sharply lower here after reporting results. The CEO, Scott Kirby, will join us exclusively for more insight into the numbers. But first, the semi-trade continues to fizzle. Is there more room to run here? A chip check. Next, Fast Money, back in two minutes. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Only 2% of, of the global memory production takes place here in the US, only 2%. And if chips doesn't get, get across the finish line, over time that 2% will become even smaller. And of course, how can you have your national security addressed through manufacturing overseas? This is why we need to have Chips Act. That was Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra. I spoke with him earlier on Closing Bell about the CHIPS Act, which did just pass a key procedural vote in the Senate. If the bill can pass the full Senate and then the House, it will provide more than $50 billion worth of subsidies and tax credits to semiconductor companies to grow U.S. chip production. Micron, Intel, NVIDIA all taking off on the news today. They did not sizzle. They did not fizzle. They sizzled. I read, the, I read it wrong. I, I confused the two. So, so Tim, does the, does the sizzle continue? I think the sizzle continues. Continues, although we, you know, we've had so we've had a 19% move in the SMH, and uh, fizzles the new sizzle, and that, that's not a bad thing. Uh, and I, I think if you look at where we went, I think it was you know March 14th to March 28th, we had the same 19% move. What's interesting also is that semiconductors and the part of the economy, I think at least the part of the market you want to see outperform, is the most cyclical part and the part that would have been under the most pressure, and it's outperformed the S&P by 12.5% in the last couple of days. Uh, you know, we, we've been here before. Technically, I'll let the chartists point this out. I mean, there's a very significant level to get through here, and I think you know there's 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 an argument for it. Companies like AMAT, companies like Intel. I mean, these these are the companies that are going to get the U.S. to that place where we feel more comfortable. Um, but if you look at valuation, there are places I think you could have been investing in semis even in the worst of the moments of this market move. And we've talked about Qualcomm. We've talked about uh, even you know to me, I think Taiwan Semi is a better place risk reward uh, in terms of yeah, it may not be the political friend we have, but it's certainly the but the second the market starts worrying about recession again, Courtney, what happens to this group? Well, I think that is the fear here, right, is there's there's concern about demand deterioration and the rising costs of this. And I think ultimately there's been a lot of increased inventory. But if they have too much inventory and demand isn't there, that is going to be one of the largest risks, I think, of your semiconductors. So I think we're going to have to continue to watch as the guidance comes out. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm still a little bit cautious here. Yeah. Micron guidance. Speaking of Micron, not too hot a few weeks ago. There's a lot more fast still to come. Here's what's coming up next. Eyes on the sky. United Airlines just out with earnings. We'll be joined exclusively by CEO Scott Kirby for an inside look at the numbers next. And speaking of flying high, the cannabis stocks are in rally mode. Will these names continue to see green? Those trades ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. 
VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money, an earnings alert on United Airlines at after-hour lows here after reporting a big miss on the top and bottom lines. Phil Lebeau is here with a CNBC exclusive interview with United CEO Scott Kirby. Phil, over to you. Thank you, Sarah. Scott, first profitable quarter yeah. without payroll support since yeah. before the pandemic. Yeah. That's the good news. The bad yeah. news is you, you fell short of expectations as well as your guidance in terms of capacity. Yeah. Summarize when you're looking at the yeah. quarter, the biggest challenge out there right well, now. Well, look, first I'd say we are really glad to be returning to profitability for the first time since COVID began. It's an important milestone. It's solid profitability. You know, in the quarter, the miss was about fuel prices. Fuel prices went up a lot, particularly New York Harbor fuel, and that is volatile and goes. Um, but the biggest challenge that's facing, that faced us, that faces us probably for the next 12 months, is all the infrastructure challenges around aviation. It's maddening to us at United right now because we've hired, we got ahead of the curve, we've been hiring, we got 10% more pilots per black hour than we had in 2019, just as an example. But you know, you look at the mess that's happening at Heathrow or some of the other challenges we've had with air traffic control or other things around the system. Uh, and the system just can't support our flying and our customers and the airline are at risk. And so what we've done is just pull our capacity back. All the costs are still there because we've got, we're prepared to be a much bigger airline. We have the people to be a much bigger airline, but we're gonna be a smaller airline until the system can support it. Which brings up the question, you're pulling back your capacity for third and fourth quarter. You are not growing as much as you previously yeah. planned for next year. How long does this last? Is yeah. this something you expect to be worked out by the end of the year, or does this go to the middle of next year, if not further beyond? We're not sure. We can't be sure because a lot of these are things that aren't in our control. But we do see progress. I mean, you know, you take Newark, which was, uh, frankly, a disaster in the second quarter. Um, the FAA has worked with us. They've been very responsive once they saw the impact um, on cutting the flights there, staffing the FAA, the, the air traffic control desk better. So we're seeing progress across, across parts of the system. We're, our base assumption is, though, that it's going to gradually get better and we're not going to get back to normal utilization and normal staffing levels until next summer. Um, and so we're going to gradually improve. It's going to take the next summer to get there. I was just in the U.K., came back yesterday. Heathrow is an absolute mess. Yeah. I got out, but I know other people who were on a United yeah. flight their flight got canceled because of a crew shortage, or it said crew when they were told. They were notified just a couple of hours yeah. beforehand. Couldn't get rebooked by you guys for at least a couple of days. Ultimately had to fly on another airline back. It, it raises the question, there's so much demand to go to Europe, but when people hear these stories or they see the lines at Heathrow, does it cut into the future demand? And how do you do better by the customer? Yeah, so we're fo that, that's the reason we're pulling down the schedule is to do better by the customer. And because this is, you know, frustrating to us. We told Heathrow how many passengers we were going to have. Heathrow basically told us 
you guys are smoking something. You're not going to have that many. And they didn't staff for it. And so we're being forced to cancel flights because Heathrow can't accommodate the flights. That winds up being crew issues because you've got flights that are delayed and this, the ripple effects just spill over. Um, but it's really frustrating to what it means to our customers, especially when we planned and prepared for this and we staffed up to support this level of operation. That's the reason that we're cutting capacity for the balance of the year. Uh, we're essentially going to keep flying the same amount that we are today, um, which, which is a less than we intended to, um, but not grow the airline until we can see evidence that the whole system can support it. Because we and our customers are on the front line, like we were prepared for London Heathrow, but when London Heathrow calls us a day before and says, you got to cancel three flights tomorrow and you got to cap the load factors at 75%. Like there's just nothing we can do. And so what we're doing is just building more buffer into the system so that we have more opportunity to accommodate those customers. Scott, Sarah has a question for you. Yeah. Sarah, go ahead. Hi, hi, Scott. Sarah Eisen here, uh, Fast Money Set. You know, a lot of the problems you're talking about, gas prices and capacity, haven't heard much on demand. Are you seeing any yeah. shift here when it comes to the consumer, especially in the U.S., as we start to worry about the impact of high inflation and higher interest rates and what that's going to do for consumer discretionary spending? Yeah, the short answer is we see we really don't see any evidence of it at all. And I think one of the things that's unique for United Airlines in particular, but even aviation in general, is that while we probably do have a slowing economy happening right now, and all else equal, that would cause revenue to go down, we have a tailwind that's increasing every day, which is we're still in the COVID recovery. Business travel, we expect another step up. Everyone tells us, all our clients tell us we're going to see another step up in September. International is still on the comeback. So we're just in the sixth or seventh inning of the COVID recovery. And that, for now at least, is counteracting any of the headwinds uh, from a slowing economy. And we actually see five-point sequential improvement in revenue uh, in the third quarter. So given that, what do you tell somebody who's looking at booking a ticket, let's say, for the holidays? They usually yeah. book it maybe a month, a month and a half in advance. Is there going to be fewer seats available if I'm flying during the holidays? Yeah, there, unfortunately, there still are going to be fewer seats available around the whole system. And, and really, this is because the infrastructure around aviation can't support it. And until the infrastructure can't, the responsible thing for us to do is pull the schedule back so we can be confident of reliability for Christmas. So book even earlier you is what you're saying. You should probably book early for Christmas. But we're going to fly less so that we can make sure we have reliability. We were planning to be back to 2019 levels in uh, Christmas, and we're now going to be 10% smaller. Um, even though we have the staff, even though we have the resources to do it, we're going to be smaller just to make sure that we can cover for all the things that are outside of our control. Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines on a day where they're back in the black, Sarah. That's the good news. Yeah. But you see the operational challenges, jet fuel, a lot of the cost issues that are out there, and uh, they're facing them along with the rest of the industry. Back to you. And Heathrow, asking what he's smoking. Phil LeBeau, Phil, thank you very much with United CEO Scott Kirby. Let's trade it. Karen, it's tricky because a lot of these things are out of their control, but clearly it's affecting their size and their right. business. And just the business model being an airline, right, there's so much fixed costs and you have to be, you know, you need that infrastructure. And then to have the, you know, the ability to fly and the, I mean, just the things that have been thrown at him in the last two years, it's kind of amazing. So extraordinary job. But uh, unfortunately, I sort of think they're pulling forward some of that, um, you know, Melissa and I always talk about, are you going to go visit your in-laws another time? 
right? No, this this will do for a while. So I, I wouldn't be I mean, surprised. Maybe not your in-laws, but your friends. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't what? be surprised if, if demand does pull back some. But what a difficult environment to be in. I don't own any airline exposure. What, well, what, what's really troubling here is that the cost per available seat mile, or the CASM number, is, is up about 32% relative to 2019. And yet the total revenue per available seat mile hasn't even gotten there yet. So they're talking about where their load and where their capacity is and really where some of their numbers are relative to 2019 in a pre-pandemic environment. You know, good news, but what you said is that it, it is the things that they can't control. And for airlines, it's always the things they can't control. This is the problem. We worry about airlines and costs because airlines have never done a good job with this. And right now, airlines on a multiple basis, which had re-rated three or four years ago, um, frankly, they're getting cut. And estimates, I think, from the street are probably coming down on 23, even though the demand profile looks better. And it was interesting, Courtney. He, Kirby mentioned demand, not seeing any weakness. He said that they're expecting a step up in business travel demand as well. But if we are heading into a recession and we're starting to see job cuts go up and spending cut back, you do wonder what happens to that core, very profitable piece of business for them. Yeah, I think the question is how much, right? Because they clearly have way more demand than they can keep up with. And demand is clearly not the problem with the airlines right now. But I think what you want to take a look at is that, like, United specifically, they're a lot more international focused and business traveler focused. And I think that's where something like your Deltas, your Southwest might be a little bit more or less... Um, susceptible to some of those changes as if companies aren't going to start sending people out, if we're still having people in the offices, they're not going to be quite as um, effective. So I would actually stick to some of your more U.S.-based airlines if you're looking at them. What about you, Dan? Yeah, JetBlue, I think that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, just given the domestic and the lack of um, your, your point about um, business travel, I think, is a big one. I mean, like we spent a lot of 2020 and early 2021 saying that Zoom was taking market share from the airlines. And now I think a lot of businesses have a very logical solution. You also have a hybrid sort of work environment. So at some point, I do think as companies are rationalizing costs, there's a really easy one to do right there. Especially with these ticket prices. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But I, but, but again, I, I I mean, you know, the pull forward, if we are going to go into a recession, you're going to see a bunch of this activity slow. He's not seeing it right now. They will. And the other thing I'll just say is great job executing in a very difficult environment. But I, I think there was kind of heavy handed. There's a lot of blame being placed on, you know, the airports and stuff like that. I mean, to me, that seems like an easy one right now. But in a quarter or so, I don't think it's going to be as easy to blame that if you don't see the sort of recovery that they're expecting and the demand does wane a little bit. Yeah, got to see the cancellations cut back, too. I mean, that's a pain. When we come back, Tesla's conference call just kicking off. We are dialed in. We'll bring you all the details. Plus, Las Vegas Sands on the move after reporting earnings. Stick around and we'll dig into that quarter and those details straight ahead. The stock is up one and a quarter percent after hours. But first, Coinbase shares have had one heck of a week, but not so fast. One options trader is making a big bearish bet on this crypto company. We'll tell you who and why. You're watching Fast Money. We'll be right back. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the pot stocks lighting it up in today's rally. A whole lot of green across canopy growth, grow generation, Tilray notching double-digit gains. The move comes as a Senate subcommittee sets a date next week for a hearing to discuss decriminalization. Tim, 
We've well, asked this a hundred million times. I, I, I expected this, Sarah. No, yeah. I, and I'm not here doing jumping jack saying I expect anything from this Congress and even into a lame duck session. I think I might be uh, probably bumming people out in the cannabis space. I think the good news is that the Senate subcommittee, Cory Booker's committee on, on judiciary is actually addressing and using it as an opportunity to listen to the Schumer bill. So overdone, so overreaching uh, and something that I don't think expectations should be for something to get done. The good news here is there's been a number of different legislative pieces that I think are adding up to uh, really where we get to. It's more that, you know, what's interesting is the cannabis sector, while all of these other high multiple sectors have been having a rally, the cannabis sector has been having a big rally, too. And the question is, what's really driving what? But when the announcement of this long overdue Schumer bill came out on Thursday of last week, not a surprise that he's going to bring this bill forward. No one's expecting the bill as it was constructed to have any shot. So I'm not here to try to you know perpetuate that. I'm here to tell you that I do believe that we have a dialogue going on in Washington where I think there's an understanding either get to banking and capital markets things or get away from that and go straight to criminal justice. You're not going to get them both in the same room. Uh, the fact that there's conversation in the Senate floor is very good news. And that's what's driving this. And I think we've got second quarter numbers for the sector coming up. Uh, I think you've priced in a lot of bad news. But look, uh, every other high beta, high multiple sector has rallied. If you look at the rally in cannabis over the last month, it, it's been you know 20 to 25 percent over a number of the big names. Yeah, no, it rallies with the junk. Yep. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, fair enough. I, I think the, the conversation is a real one being had in the Senate after the House passing safe seven times. Uh, don't expect it to pass is my view, but a lot of good news coming. All right. From cannabis to crypto, check out Coinbase shares soaring more than 14 percent today after the cryptocurrency exchange said it had no exposure to bankrupt firms Celsius, Three Arrows Capital and Voyager Digital. Coinbase is up a whopping 40% just this week and more than 60% in July. It's still down about 70% this year. But one options trader is making a huge bet that this stock has come too far too fast. Tony Zhang joins us with the action. Tony. Yeah, that's exactly right. Coinbase traded very actively. Oh, working on it. Try to get a shot right, clearly. But in the meantime, would anybody be a buyer of a, of a Coinbase on this crypto rally? Well, again, the correlation we've seen in, in the space has been enormous. And if you look at Coinbase, it's probably trading with a beta of you know, one and a half to the underlying. So a 60 percent move in the last month is certainly in line. Um, I, you know, the question ultimately for Coinbase is the broadening of the business, the broadening of the platform and what you're willing to pay on a multiple here. Tony, you're not buying it. I think we fixed your shot. Um, great. So what I was saying is that Coinbase was very active today, trading more than two and a half times the average daily volume on that news today, the bankruptcy news. But one trader seemingly is fading this strength here, buying 5,700 contracts of the August 12th, $65 puts, paying on an average price of about $5.15 per contract. Now, this is a put option that is about 15% out of the money. And this trader is laying out more than $3.1 million in premium to bet that Coinbase is going to fall very sharply because these are going to expire in about three weeks or so. Very interesting spotting there. Thank you very much, Tony. Appreciate it. Look at Tesla. It is moving higher again here after hours. The call kicked off a few minutes ago. Let's bring back Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, what have we heard so far? Sarah, Elon is on the call, which is notable, and he came out swinging. He is bullish, uh, saying that they're going to have record production. He left a caveat that some of it is out of his hands. The second notable data point is that the number of full self-driving users 
is now over 100,000. That number surprised me. I would have guessed it was sub 50,000. It's still not there for prime time, but uh, the Tesla uh, users are paying up for it. And last, he gave a little tidbit about some production improvements in Berlin. He talked about the body elements of building cars, that it requires 70% less labor compared to Fremont. That is the machine that makes the machine. That is one competitive advantage that Tesla has relative to other automotive. So uh, Elon's uh, set, setting up, really focusing people beyond the gross margins into the big picture. Gene Munster, thank you very much. Stay close. On the Tesla call, Musk said he wouldn't be on routinely on every single earnings call. Here he is, and he comes out with big hopes for the second half. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's nothing really more to say. I, you know, he's, I give him credit for going on there, and there should be a lot of tough questions. But again, we have no idea. It doesn't have great visibility. If you're telling me the machines that build the machines are better in Berlin than they are in Austin or Fremont or whatever, okay, fine. Maybe I'll believe you if you tell me that there's 100,000 full self-driving people right when the, the guy who's been literally running that group for five years, right before they're supposed to uh, announce level four leaves, for not for another job. You, you know, PSA, I wouldn't be using full self driving just read the reviews about it doesn't sound particularly safe so again i think he's going to touch all the things that are part of the bear case here but the stock trades well the, the people who own it they, they don't want to see i guess some of the, the warts on the story here right especially if it's if it's related to production issues and supply chain stuff like covid and what's happening in china Karen. Well, it's interesting that he is on the call. I mean, right, there's never a more beloved uh, CEO than he is. I, you have to wonder, though, how much of it is does he need to test the stock to trade well because Twitter. of Twitter? So I mean, so the, but the, I, this, the, the presumption here, at least for a fair part of the desk, is he's just there to cheerlead to, yes. to, to keep the stock he in could a do level. That on he's Twitter. a good cheerleader. I mean, just tweet. Yeah. It's not either or. He could do that, too. But, but clearly, I mean, the demand, the, the 100,000 number on self-driving that Gene mentioned, clearly the, there's the, not a demand issue. The demand numbers are, are strong. And, and this is someone, I'm not bullish on Tesla. It's very expensive. And there's a lot of reasons why I'm not bullish on te Tesla. But um, Shanghai and supply chain are not reasons to sell the stock. Um, I mean, those are, those are not the reasons that are secular or fundamental or, or things that are driving the interest in Tesla or not. Um, I just but that's what's driving the margin right now, including FX and others. Right, so you should get a factors. pass on that. Yeah. yeah, that's about as bullish as you're going to get, <laughs> it sounds like. When we come back, check out Las Vegas Sands. Also, it's moving higher here after hours. That stock reporting results in the last hour will bring you the numbers. Plus, stocks closing out in the green today overall, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq leading the charge again. So where to next? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money back in two. Welcome back. Be sure to stay tuned at the top of the hour. Jim Cramer on his new set at the New York Stock Exchange talking with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink tonight. Catch that full exclusive interview at the top of the hour. Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Meanwhile, what a difference a week makes since hitting its lows for the month last Thursday at the very start of earnings season. The S&P 500 has clawed back a whopping 6.6 percent. It got within 25 points of the 4,000 handle today and is up about 9 percent from the 52-week lows. And then take a look at some of these individual names seeing even bigger gains over that period. Carnival, Netflix, Citigroup, all up 20 percent or more. The strength coming across sectors from the reopening stocks to high growth stocks to the financials after earnings. So is it a sign that a bottom is in or is the buying opportunity behind us? Courtney. 
I want to say that, yeah, this is the start of a, a bull market. I mean, I think we all want to say that, but I am definitely a little bit cautious here because I think ultimately we just haven't seen that capitulation you think you'd see. There hasn't been that increase in volatility. Um, I think hopefully this is, we've seen the worst of it so far. I think ultimately we are getting close to a point here where we're going to start to see Inflation start to come down. Hopefully, we're going to get some signs that that's peaking. We're still seeing a really strong consumer and a strong balance sheet, but I don't know if we're at the end of all this quite yet. So I'd proceed with a little bit of caution. Dan, I can't imagine you're no, feeling I mean, like we've seen I, 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 You said you want it to be that. I don't want it to be I think there needs to be more capitulation. You just said something um, before, Sarah, that, you know, uh, if we do have inflation or recessionary fears once again, I mean, one week does not change Marcus that, right? We still have a 10-year at 3%. We still have crude at 102. We still have the Dixie at 107. I mean, the, I could go on and on. So and we, just a bear market and we still have an S&P valuation that's way too high. If you go back and you look at some of the rallies that we've seen in and around Fed meetings, this kind of lines up with what we saw in June. So I suspect we will see a hawkish Fed that continues into September. I think in August we'll probably see a new low here. This has kind of been the trading pattern of 2022, and I just don't know why it's going to turn on a dime right now. This was ignited by extreme bearishness and extreme sentiment lows. We saw that BAML uh, fund manager survey, and also positioning. Let's be clear, the professional community, uh, and today in the last couple, I'll just say this, smells a little bit like tech and teen FOMO. In other words, I, I think People are underpositioned, and a lot of people, you get fired. You don't necessarily get fired for uh, losing money on the way down. You get fired for missing the rally on the way back. I'm not saying that this is that rally. I'm with everybody here, but there's no question there's some FOMO out there. But also maybe, I, I think everyone's expecting a hawkish Fed next week, right? But maybe this is the market telling you that maybe we're sooner to the pivot or the end of the hawkishness than planned. In the next few months, especially, if the economy turns and inflation has indeed peaked. Yes, I think that is why we're seeing, as well as the very oversold condition going in. So, right, if, if inflation is really turning in, there's a lot to think that it is. Then the, then the Fed's a lot closer to being done with the job. Also, this, this rally, though, I do think there's, there's, it's uneven. We think of the market as a monolith, right? But it's not. It's made of so many different sectors. Some of them, I think, have bottomed. Some of the really sort of cheap Would you retail. put money to work on that thesis? Would you buy? Yes. Where? Yes, I Where? would, but I'd rather, Dan and I were talking before the show, um, I'd rather buy when things are trading down by integers, not up by integers. It's right. much, I find it much harder to buy. Well, I think also, Dan, the, the question of even if inflation peaks, yes, 9.1%, even if that's the high mark, it's not like it's going down to 2%. And this is a Fed that is yeah, the very focused on bringing down inflation. So even if it gets down to 6 7%, right. that's but still problematic. Here's what we haven't said. We haven't seen unemployment tick up yet. And that has to happen. That has to happen in this rate hiking cycle here. And we haven't seen it yet. We're still at pre-pandemic levels. That's happening. So to me, I just think it's also important to remember that these hikes are going to take, what, six to nine months to work themselves into the economy. So we haven't seen the economy really weaken just yet. We're starting to see housing roll over. We've seen the stock market roll over about 20 percent. So, again, this is not how a market bottoms after record. I mean, like like, like the craziest experiment of fiscal and monetary policy to a black swan event. We're just not going to bottom lazily uh, in mid-July. It's By the way, the housing data today, super ugly yeah. on existing home It sales. needs to be. We also have the ECB tomorrow. They might hike by a double 50 basis points. And we have not really seen the effect of QT or quantitative tightening, which I think is still a just big started. question mark over the You sound bearish too, Sarah. I'm, I'm just presenting all the, all, the, all the arguments. I don't know. I had Tom Lee on the show today. He, he says... Inflation has peaked and the Fed is going to pivot, and that's a reason to buy. He's not worried about QT. So that, that feeling is out there.
When we come back, we are all over the after hours moves in Las Vegas Sands. Look at shares there jumping after reporting uh, this early this hour. We'll bring you the details on that next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at Dogecoin prices. Elon Musk just saying on the Tesla conference call that they have not sold any of their Dogecoin. I'm sure you were all wondering, even though they did sell 75 percent of the of the Bitcoin. So that so that was a question. And look, Dogecoin moving 3.6 percent. Earnings alert now on Las Vegas Sands. Shares higher after the company reported a top line beat. But earnings per share did fall short of estimates as international headwinds persist. Contessa Brewer here with more from the earnings call. Contessa. Hi there, Sarah. Yep. On the call, the executives really grappled with the downside here. They're burning a million dollars a day. And the COVID outbreak in Macau is lowering revenue in the third quarter because the casinos are closed this week and they were closed last week. But Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, the most profitable property pre-pandemic, and its importance this quarter is clear. Revenues just walloped expectations from this particular property. And even though the company is dealing with higher costs from utilities and wage inflation and higher taxes, it's still looking at EBITDA margins of 47%. CEO Rob Goldstein said on the call that air travel is a real challenge. It's still at less than 50% of pre-pandemic levels. But what they've seen is that the countries that are closest to Singapore have seen a big lift. And then he expects to see other Asian countries uh, increasing the visitors that they're sending there. He says they have room to grow. Marina Bay Sands is not at capacity. The executives point out they have kept their team members, so they are prepared to deal as the airport is able to bring back staff and, and able to add in more flights. They can deal with this surge in business, they say, unlike some of their competitors. And they think Singapore is just beginning to flex its muscle. The important thing to note here, Sarah, is that uh, the, the conference business is going to be rebounding as well. And then this COVID thing with Macau, there's no real clarity about when that ends. The zero uh, tolerance policy from China is really getting in the way of any kind of significant rebound there. Contessa Brewer, Contessa, thank you. Let's let's trade this, Tim. And how do you do that without any clarity on China's zero tolerance for COVID policy? Well, you, you don't need to presume this is a China only, China only play and that Singapore Marina Bay Sands, I think, very important cash in the balance sheet. They've actually divested some expensive assets. They haven't chased online sports betting. I mean, I, I think they've done a lot of things really smart here. Uh, I've been long. It's been frustrating. I stay long. Karen? I don't really have much exposure. I do have a little bit of MGM, which was more about building out their online business. And it's very, they have a tiny bit of exposure in China, but it's mostly U.S. centric. Courtney? Yeah, I think this is going to be a China story here. And I think if you still have COVID restrictions, which in the short term is still going to be one of their largest risks, I think there's going to be some concern. Longer term, it could look good, but short term, I'm not a buyer. Though the casinos have roared back, like like so many Mm -hmm. other groups we've talked about lately, along with cruises this week. Up next, your final trades here on Fast Money. Don't go anywhere. Time for a final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Sarah, great to have you. Isn't it great to all be together here? So uh, Vegas Sands. Yeah, 75% (laughs) of the valuation right now is just Singapore. I think you get a lot for free. A lot of bad news priced in. You don't need Macau to come roaring back. Karen. Yeah, so the airlines have had a big run up, but now they've run into some headwinds, pun intended, with this UAL. I'd be a shorter of Jets, the ETF. Mm, Courtney. 
Uh, we're talking about Tesla and the EV space. I'd actually go with more of your traditional autos and look at something like a GM, which is so much better of a valuation right here. Dan. Yeah, it may come as a surprise. As good as Tesla's quarter was in Q1, I, this one looks uninspiring to me. So if you didn't buy that quarter, you shouldn't be buying this one. All right, stocks up a little bit after hours. That does it for us. Thank you for watching Fast Money, guys. Thanks for having me. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.